we're going to talk about uh, one of the five things we've said this week. We are going to be looking at one each night. And there are five things that we've been talking about are things that human beings need they can't live without. Meaning, satisfaction, freedom, identity, and hope. We said we cannot live without them. And I'm arguing every night that Christianity is uh, not only does it give you a tremendous explanation for why each of those five things is a need, but arguably gives you, supplies the need, doesn't just explain the need, but supplies the need, and gives you resources to meet that need, arguably, and I'm arguing, uh, in unparalleled ways. Uh, and along the way, people are asking, and you maybe have, are thinking, well, but how do you know Christianity is true? The answer is there are ways of determining that Christianity is true. What I'm trying to show you tonight and the other nights is that uh, I want to show you that if you believed it was true, look at this incredible resource you have for living life so that you are motivated to do the exploration you need to do. I am not in a uh, comprehensive way saying here's the entire case for Christianity, but I want you to be in a position where you're motivated because you say, if it really is true that Christianity offers that sort of thing, that if I believed it was true, I would have that. If that's really available, I, at least, I ought to at least, it's only sensible for me to explore whether it is true. It would be foolish for me not to at least look at it. The outcome I'm looking for from, from you is not so much that you walk away being convinced as much as I, I, I'm trying to motivate you to walk away saying, I need to explore this. And we'll talk about this as we have every night. We would like you to do other things, come to discussion groups. That's the most important thing you could get from here. Just for, not that necessarily this convinces me Christianity is true, but this convinces me that I would be a fool not to at least see whether it is or not. Identity. Identity, I'll show you in a second, is a little different than the other five things. Uh, what is identity? Identity has, uh, consists of at least two things. It consists of a sense of self that's durable. Uh, your understanding of who you are and what you're about can't change every day, can't change in every situation. There needs to be a core you. There needs to be something you say, uh, an understanding of who you are and what makes you you, something that's durable, a core that is true from day to day, week to week, year to year, and from situation to situation. But besides a sense of self, identity also includes a sense of worth, a sense of value, a sense that uh, you feel like you're a significant and valuable person. And unless you have that sense of self and that sense of worth, you don't have what's really called an identity. What's a bit different about this one, uh, this need, as opposed to the others, identity formation is a process that every culture pushes on its members. And it pushes it on its members so strongly that most of the members in the culture don't even realize there is a process or that there's some other process that's available. It's just always self-evident, this is how you get an identity. This is how you get a sense of self-worth. This is how you, you know you're a good or a valuable person. This is how you know you're a significant person. The culture pushes it on you so much that you really, it's invisible to you. I'm going to try to make the process a little bit more visible tonight and then show you how Christianity is a way for you to break out of your culture, cultural categories because Christianity gives you an identity process that, I will argue, uh, is more profoundly grounded. It gives you an identity more profoundly grounded, more joyful, uh, more coherent, 
than any other process can give you. Um, I'm going to, as usual, read a passage of the scripture, and as usual, I'm going to say I'm not going to be able to unpack this entire passage, but rather I will read it to you and I will select several themes that bear on our topic. This is John chapter 10. I'm going to read the very beginning of the chapter, verses 1 to 3, and then a section in the middle of the chapter, verses 11 to 15. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, here's three things we learned from the passage that bears on our topic of identity and will reveal the unique kind of Christian identity that's available to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Number one, we're sheep. Number two, we're named. Number three, we're redeemed. First, we're sheep. Uh, now, one of the main biblical metaphors for human beings is sheep. God's a shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, and we are sheep. Now, if you hear, the Lord is my shepherd, does that make you feel warm and toasty inside? I'm here to tell you that the, the biblical metaphor that human beings are sheep is, is a massive insult, and it's supposed to be. So next time, don't feel toasty. Uh, get mad or, or get convicted because what it's telling you is this. Sheep are, now why an American is telling British people this, we, you must know more about sheep than I do because <laughs> there seems to be proportionately a whole lot more here. But sheep are the most non-self-sufficient animal possible. They are the most non-self-sufficient uh, they don't seem, evidently they can't go find their own food. They uh, very often, even when the, the food's in front of them, they sometimes eat the bad thing instead of the good thing. If they're far away from home, they can't find their way home. They're utterly helpless. They are the most non-self-sufficient animal possible. And here we're told that they need a shepherd and the shepherd names them. Now, even though we're going to get back to the idea of naming in a second, stop right there and realize that modern Western culture absolutely rejects with horror this particular image. Because what we're being told here is that we are non-self-sufficient and we need to be named. Somebody, from outside, somebody outside of us has to assign us an identity. Somebody has to give us an identity because we're not self-sufficient. We're not able to go create our own identity or find our own identity. Somebody's got to do that. Somebody's got to name us. And this is what modern Western culture absolutely rejects. It rejects it uh, absolutely uh, categorically. Ancient cultures, and, and as many of you know, because you're from there, non-Western cultures today, they do assign you an identity. Ancient cultures, identity formation works like this. You are in a family. 
you are in a people group. And the family and the people group assign you a role and a set of responsibilities and duties that go with that role. And your identity is wrapped up, your sense of self-worth and significance and sense of self is wrapped up in that, in doing those duties, in fulfilling those roles, and discharging those responsibilities. So if you ask a person in ancient times, if you ask a person today from Western, a non-Western culture, who are you? They will really say, I'm a son or I'm a daughter. I'm a father or I'm a mother. I've got a role in the family. I've got a role in the peop my people. And my self-worth uh, comes when the family bestows honor on me because I am sublimating my individual interests for the good of the whole. That's how I know who I am. That's how I know I'm a good person. And um, by the way, I mean, in some non-Western cultures, some of you know, for example, that when, uh, when Koreans write their name, they give their family name first and uh, their personal name second. And that's actually a very good expression of uh, identity formation in non-Western cultures and, Asia, and, and ancient cultures. And what that identity formation is, is you are your duties, you are your role. It is assigned to you. Modern Western culture is utterly different, totally different. In fact, it's the reverse. Probably nobody's expressed this better than uh, the great sociologist, now late great sociologist, American sociologist, Robert Bella. He and a team of people some years ago wrote a book called The Habits of the Heart. And it was the first uh, book to really, uh, even though it was on a US culture, he basically was identifying that after World War II, the individualism of Western culture just began to accentuate and intensify. And Robert Bella gave the name, uh, a name to it. He called it expressive individualism. And the way he understood how we do identity formation in the, in the West is this. He put it like this. He said, we do not discover who we are uh, by sublimating our individual needs to the community or the family. Rather, quote, each person has a unique core feeling and intuition that must unfold and be expressed if individual identity is to be realized. That's what we believe. That's what the culture tells you. That is... No one can name you, you must name yourself. No one can assign you an identity. You have to look inside, look at your deepest desires, find out who you really are, and then express that. You, you need to discover your authentic self and be that. You mustn't let your society, you mustn't let uh, your family uh, in any way impose that on you. That would be horrible. In other words, the Western uh, process of identity formation is absolutely the opposite. Remember some years ago I saw you know, the British actor Patrick Stewart. And for many years he uh, played uh, 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 Jean-Luc Picard in uh, Star Trek, The Next Generation. I have no, all my problems with cultural references, I have no idea how familiar you are with it, but you don't need to be familiar with it. There's one place where, uh, just this is so typical, not brilliant, just typical, where he's uh, talking about to some young man who wants to go into Starfleet Academy and maybe get into Starfleet and become a, a captain and, and so on. And he looks at him and he says, if you're going to do this, you need to, don't do this for your mother. Don't do it because your mother wants you to do it. Don't do it for me. Don't do, do it because you want to please me. Do it for yourself. Don't get your identity from what people say about you. Get your identity because of what you say about you. You need to affirm yourself. You need to decide this is what I want to be. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. That's the heart of modern Western expressive individualism.
so here's a summary of, of, the, of the two basic ways that are out there today and, have, and, and are in front of us. The traditional way of identity formation is you are your duties within the community. And your self-worth depends on the honor that is bestowed upon you by your community. Then you know, because you've made them proud, that uh, you're a person of worth. Western expressive individualism, however, says you are your dreams. You are your desires, your deepest desires. And particularly, you're your choices. You are who you choose to be, and your self-worth depends on the dignity that you bestow on yourself because you have realized your dreams and desires. You know, here's two, here's two immortal pieces of literature just to show you the difference. You know the Battle of Malden, right? Don't you study that here and in Anglo-Saxon, don't you, in Old English? At one point near the end of the battle, the warriors see that they're losing and even though they have a chance to run away and save their lives, oh no, no, no. You know, they realize that they can bring great honor to their people by dying bravely. So uh, I think it's Brithwold shakes his spear of ashwood, he calls to his soldiers and he says, thought must be harder, hearts be the keener, minds be the greater as our strength lessens. Here lies our prince, all hewn. I will not away, but I myself, beside my Lord, so loved a man, think to lie. That's a... That's the way it used to be, that's how, that's how. In fact, many parts of the world, that's still the way identity is formed. Honor, sacrifice, don't do what you wanna do, do what's right for the group, for the family, for the people, for the tribe. And then, here's another immortal piece of literature. Climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow till you find your dream. I didn't sing, I was careful. And, if you, and you know where that comes from. It comes from uh, a song telling a woman, leave the convent, leave the community, uh, you know, leave your vows, go out and figure out who you are. Those are the two different approaches uh, to identity formation. What's the problem? Because you know I'm going to critique. What's the problem with the Western identity formation uh, process? Before I say what's wrong with it, let me just say something. Uh, I don't say this is an awful thing. In fact, I'm going to say that both the traditional and the Western approach to identity formation are crushing, maybe even equally crushing. But I see the advantages to the Western view. My grandfather was born in Italy. My mother's father was born in Italy in 1880. <laughs> Some of you are saying, how old are you? <laughs> but anyway, so... <laughs> Guess, but anyway... Um, and uh, he lived in a little town outside of Naples somewhere. And uh, his father was a potter, made, made pottery, and his grandfather, his grandfather. So he grew up and he started saying to his father, I don't want to do pottery. I want to do something else. And his father said, uh, excuse me, there's only three things you can do. You could go be a priest, you could go to the military, or you could be a potter. That's it. Why, Dad? Well, because our family makes pottery. Nobody's gonna give you any other job. That's our place. Well, what if I go to another town? Well, they're not gonna hire you over there because you're gonna say, you're from that town. You're not from this town. You can't work over here. And the stratification, the, uh, 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 
when, when you are your duties, when you are your role, what that meant was lots of people were locked in uh, some terrible places in society. There was no way out. There was no mobility at all. And yet, modern Western cultural, mo modern Western culture's identity formation is every bit as crushing. Every bit as crushing. First of all, it's incoherent. You know why? Because if you look deep in your heart and say, I have to find out who I really am. Okay, fine. How are you doing that? Well, I'm looking at my deepest desires. Okay, what are they? They contradict. You're going to find yourself, for example, falling in love with somebody and, and, and having prepared for a career. And you know what? Wait a minute. I really want to be with this person and I really want this career. And in order to be with this person, my career is not going to do very well. What are you going to do? Which one do you love more? The fact is you love them both. Uh, Francis Spufford in that book I mentioned before, Unapologetic, a very funny book, says this, talking to us as human beings. He says, you are a being whose wants make no sense. It's okay. Good luck doing expressive individual. Good luck looking into your heart and figuring out who am I really? You are a being who, whose wants make no sense, don't harmonize, whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want not at the very same time. You're equipped, you eventually realize, for farce or even tragedy, much more for happy endings. It, 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 one of the problems is if you really are saying, my feelings, my deepest desires, this is who I really am, this is where I get my identity, not only do they, do they contradict many of your deepest desires, but they change. And part of having a sense of self is saying, this is who I am through the good times and the bad times. When I'm in my 20s and my 30s, yes, there's of course going to be some growth. There has to be. But if it's just your desires, they're going to change all the time. It's really quite incoherent. It actually is unworkable. But the other thing I want to tell you about is it's crushing. Yes, of course it's crushing. Some of you know if you've come from cultures in which your parents' expectations and your family expectations and the social roles just seem to smother you, well, so does this too. Because one, since you have to create your own identity, you have to decide who you want to be and then achieve it, that's a crushing weight. You've got to achieve it. You've got to be brilliant. You've got to be beautiful. You've got to be attractive. You've got to be hip. You've got to be uh, uh, successful. It's all up to you in a way that in traditional cultures that just wasn't the case. It's crushing. You know, um, some years ago in Vogue magazine, uh, Madonna was interviewed and she says this, quote, my drive in life is from the fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and I discover myself as a special human being, but then, then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Or, for example, interesting, uh, in uh, Arthur Miller's great play, After the Fall, there's a place where a guy talks about his loss of faith in God. And you would think, well, if a guy loses his faith in God or doesn't believe in God anymore, he's free. He's free to, he can create his own reality. He can, he can decide, I, I, nothing makes me feel guilty or ashamed anymore. I decide what I want to do. I decide what is right or wrong for me. 
and I achieve that. And nobody can make me feel guilty or you should be this, you should be that. I get to choose. So I shouldn't feel crushed, ashamed, guilty. Not true. In fact, it can actually get worse, according to Arthur Miller, if there's no God. This is what he says. Uh, this is the, 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 right, the author, uh, pardon me, the, the narrator in the, uh, in, in the play. Here's a man who talks about his loss of faith, and he says this. For years I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you have to prove how brave you are, or smart. Then, eventually, what a good lover you are. Later, what a good husband or father you are. Finally, you have to prove how wise or how powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I now see I had an assumption that one moved on a path toward, I don't know, toward being justified or condemned, a verdict anyway. My disaster happened the day I looked up and realized that the bench was empty, no judge in sight, no God. But then he says, and all that remained was this endless argument with myself, the litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is another way of saying despair. Even when he decided there was no judge up there looking at how he was achieving, how well he was doing, he couldn't stop what he's really calling the endless, pointless litigation of existence. The constant arguments, they don't stop. Remember Harold Abrams? He was the guy, the only person who ever won an Olympic gold medal in slow motion. Chariots of Fire? Okay, sorry, 80s, 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 you said... Did they have movies yet in the 80s? In Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrams is running uh, for a gold medal uh, in the Olympics, at least the way it's depicted in the movie. Yeah, I have no idea about the real Harold Abrams, who was, who was a real man, obviously. But in the movie, he's depicted and he never smiles. And even when he gets the gold medal, he doesn't really enjoy it. And one of the reasons is he says, when that gun goes off, it was a 100-yard dash, he says, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. See, the, the endless litigation of existence. I have to live up, I have to live up, I have to live up to standards, I've got to achieve. And when he gets the gold medal, like Madonna, I thought I would feel like somebody, I still don't quite feel like somebody. Even though the bench is empty, even though there's no God out there to, to condemn me or to acclaim me. It's, nevertheless, I can't stop it. Listen, what you're going to have to do, if you let what, what the culture of the West, and especially a, a place like Oxford, is going to push on you, is in the name of freedom, which was last night, they're going to say, you have to decide who you want to be. Don't let anybody tell you who you are. You decide that, you determine who you want to be, and then you achieve that. And then you know you've got dignity, then you have self-worth and self-value. I'm telling you, it's a trap. Because you will have to take some good thing like work or career. It's a good thing. Or romance or love. It's a good thing. And you'll have to turn it into an identity factor. Not just a good thing. But your very significance and security will be completely based in it. And let me tell you what happens. Let me give you a quick example or two. For example, um, some years, let's, let's talk about work for a minute. A couple years ago, uh, there was just a, a good essay in the New York Times by a guy named Benjamin Nugent, who was a, a writer at the time. And he wrote, a, um, wrote an interesting essay about how difficult it was for him to 
get anything written, though he was trying to be a novelist, a short story writer, I think. Here's what he said. When good writing was my only goal in life, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. Can I say that again? I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. He took a good thing and turned it into an identity factor. We had to. That's what your culture tells you, or something like that. And here's what he said. For this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I had just written was good or bad because I needed it to be good in order to feel sane. I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate how much I liked what I had written to see what was actually on the page rather than what I would have liked to have seen or what I feared to see. And he went on and on to say when his, when his identity was based in being a good writer, he was a terrible writer. So he proudly announces at the end of the article that he's not in that anymore and actually his writing is going well because he got a girlfriend. Okay. So let's go to Ernest Becker, who is the uh, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning Denial of Death. And Ernest Becker, does, he wrote this a long time ago, in the 1970s, but he was very prescient. He said, people used to get their identity from God or from family or even from the nation, being a citizen, patriot. Now we have to get our own identity. And here's what he says, sometimes people do it in love and romance. And in a very important passage, he says, he calls this the romantic solution, quote, the self-glorification, the self-glorification we now need, we don't get it from God, we don't get it from family, the self-glorification we now need to achieve in our innermost being, we now look for in our love partner. Okay, maybe not in work, so in love. And here's what he says. What is it we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know. Our, we, we want to be rid of our faults. We want to be justified. We want to get rid of our feeling of nothingness. We want to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption from our love partner, nothing else. And then he adds, needless to say, no human being can give you this. Because something similar to what happened to that writer happens. If, 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 if you get your main sense of significance from someone who you adore loving you, some love partner, can you criticize that person even when they need it? No, because if they get angry at you, you melt down. Remember what the writer said? He says, when, when the quality of my work was the measure of my worth, I, I had to believe that this was good. Because if it wasn't good, what I'd just written, I wouldn't go, I, he said, I couldn't be sane. Why? Because his very identity was wrapped up in it. It wasn't just a good thing. It was an ultimate thing. It was his very identity. His whole sense of self would be missing if he wasn't a good writer. If somebody said, you're not a good writer. And so you're in love with somebody and you're doing more than just loving that person. You're actually getting your identity out of that person. That this person likes me, loves me. How can, you, how can you give that person criticism because their anger will just devastate you? In fact, how can you handle that person's problems? They, that person has a problem and they start to get self-absorbed and then they're not giving you the affirmation you want. You can't take it. It'll be a destructive relationship. Over and over again, what you see is the Western understanding of identity formation 
is a crushing, crushing burden. So we come down to something. We're on the lip of the last point here, the last two points quickly. Uh, we're on the lip of the last point. We come down to an interesting quote by Isaac Dennison in Out of Africa. And she has a very interesting place where she says, pride is faith in the idea God had when he made us. Most people are not aware of any idea of God in the making of them, and sometimes they make you doubt that there ever has been much of an idea or else it has been lost and who shall find it again? They have to accept as success what others warrant it to be so and to take their happiness and even their own selves at the quotation of the day. She says, if you don't have God in your life, here's the irony, you think you're free to create your own self. Actually, you are now, you're gonna to have to take except as success, because you're defining yourself by success, what others warrant it to be, and take your happiness, even your own selves, at the quotation of the day. What this means is actually, you really aren't creating yourself. Nobody can really affirm themselves. Nobody can just bless themselves. Nobody can just say, I don't care what anybody else says. All that matters is I'm happy with myself. You can't do that. It just doesn't work. You have to have a word from outside. Someone from outside has to name you. There has to be somebody who you adore, who adores you, and that person can't be human. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Someone that you cannot but praise, who praises and loves you, that's the essence of identity. The trouble if that's your parents, they're not perfect, they're human. The trouble with a love partner, the trouble of, of, of work, it will just crush you, it'll just drive you into the ground. You really do need someone to name you, but that person, that person can't be someone who changes, someone who's fickle, someone who, uh, who actually you can lose. Because if you lose your success, or if you lose your loved one, then you've lost yourself. What do you need? You need God to name you. You know, when it says, interestingly here, uh, when it says the sheep have a shepherd and this good shepherd names the sheep. I remember some years ago uh, when I was extraordinarily insecure in, in where I was going, what I was doing, I was just a student. I did want to go into the ministry. I wasn't sure I'd be uh, good at it. And I'd met a man who was a, a great teacher and a person I admired very much. And and I met him really just briefly in, in, in one location. About two years later, I showed up where he was giving a lecture. And when he was done, I walked up and I said, uh, hi, you wouldn't remember me. And he looked at me and said, oh yes, and he named me. Somebody I admired, somebody I emulated, he named me. He said, hey, let's go sit down, let's get something to drink. I wanna find out how you're doing. And I remember thinking several years later, uh, that just uh, just filled me up. It just it stabilized me. It 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 it. I lost a lot of my self doubt. I lost a lot of the pretense. But then I said, I can't build my life on this guy. And yet I said, if 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 a, a single human being who I admire like that can change me like that, what if I really believed that God loved me? What if I really believed that God knew me? What if I really believe that the God of the universe actually knew me by name? But that's what's being promised here. But how's that possible? Here's how it's possible. 
I am the great shepherd. I am the good shepherd because I lay down my life for my sheep. I'm about to tell you something. I've been thinking about this all day. In fact, I was thinking about it last night. And uh, I'm going to give you some theology. I'm not doing it to show off. I'm certainly not doing it to, I don't know. I'm doing it because the, the, the greatest secret of Christian identity, an identity that will not crush you, an identity that's not based on your performance, an identity, it, it's, not, it's not the sort of thing that you're always going to be wondering whether or not you can uh, live up to it. Uh, it's locked in what I'm about to say. Jesus Christ says, I name my sheep, I lay down my life for them. He dies for us on the cross. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, 14, says this. Christ became a curse for us, taking the curse of the law, so that in Christ Jesus, we might receive the promised blessing by faith. Here's some theology. Curse, blessing. There's two ways to satisfy a law. Think of the law of the stop sign. At least in America, there's a stop sign. There's two ways to satisfy that law. You come to a full stop, then you go on. The law has no claim on you because you've fulfilled it. The other thing to do is you drift through the stop sign. The policeman comes and writes you a ticket, probably $95 or something like that. And uh, now that you've paid your fine, the, the law has no more uh, claim on you. In other words, there's the blessing of the law because I fulfilled it and I'm free to go. Then there's the curse of the law, but if I fulfill that by paying my penalty, I'm free to go as well. Jesus Christ comes to earth from heaven. And he loves God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and he loves his neighbor as himself perfectly, the only human being that ever lived a life of perfect love. And what does he deserve? The blessing. He deserves the blessing of the law. He deserves, he, he deserves acclamation. He deserves the love of God. He deserves whatever. But then he goes to the cross and he takes the curse. He earns the blessing of the law, but then he takes the curse of the law so that we can receive the blessing by faith. And what does that mean? I'll just give you a couple words, but it means this. The Bible says that if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you say, Father, accept me, not because of anything I have done, but because of what he has done, God puts the curse that we deserve for disobeying what? I'm going to say as a Christian minister, we're disobeying the law of God. But I want you to know that you yourself know you may not believe in sin, you may not believe in hell, you may not believe in a divine law, and yet you've got a sense of condemnation you can't shake. There's a voice, is there not? There's a voice that calls you a fraud, calls you an imposter, says you're not, you're not living up. You know that voice. It's a curse. You're not living up to your own standards, whatever they are, whether it's love, whether it's uh, integrity, whether it's justice. I don't care what it is. You're not living up to it. Jesus Christ says, I've taken the curse. I've paid the penalty. The thing that the voice says, you deserve this. No, I've taken what you deserve. So that when you believe in me, then you can know that God looks at you in me. That is to say, I take your curse, you get my blessing. I take what you deserve so that you can have what I deserve. And God sees you in me and he sees an absolute beauty. The, the, eyes of the, the, uh, the, the eyes of the only person in the universe whose opinion matters looks at you and sees you as more precious than all the jewels that lie beneath the earth. 
That's called justification by faith. That means that in Christ you're justified. That means you're clothed in Jesus Christ's honors and, and rewards that he has earned, and yet God sees you as an absolute beauty. That's a lot of theology, but I tell you the secret of a completely transformed life is in there for you. Do you know why? Because it's the only way to get the only... The, Christianity offers you something that no culture offers, no religion offers. Every other culture, every other religion says, do this, do this, and you will be accepted. Even Western culture, do this, do this, and you'll be accepted. And Christianity says, believe in Jesus Christ and what he's done, and you're accepted. And then, see, do good, and you're accepted. Be accepted, and then you're free to do good. Christianity is radically different in its identity formation process. And let me tell you something. When you're successful, it won't go to your head because you know you're just a sinner saved by grace. And when you're a failure, it will not destroy you because the things you're failing at are not the basis of your identity. You fail in love, you fail in, in career, you fail in school. It's not your identity anymore. You're impervious. You've got a ballast you never had before. How does it happen? The Bible says that Jesus Christ, this is Philippians chapter 2, Jesus Christ emptied himself of his glory and made himself of no reputation. He was glorious and he became a nobody. And on the cross, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was crucified outside the gate. Jesus Christ gave up his glory to become a nobody so that you could have a name. 